0: This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China. Red China. I was just like, cha-cha-cha-China.
1: Hello and welcome to episode three of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is Katie Putkery. And Katie, we're going where no other podcast goes because no one else has got a Billy.
0: Yeah, nobody has Billy, and also nobody has us.
1: True. I
0: mean, I figure that together you and I make at least one half of a good brain. <laughs> and uh, you know, by the time we wheel in our expert on the topic, it will have uh, established a full frontal lobe.:
1: Yes, and so we last week we had Doris Day mm. and with a quite remarkable bit of segueing, today we do red China.
0: Red China, quite a vast. Topic. Thanks, Billy. Yeah, thanks a lot, Billy. I mean, you know, it's just about as much as I can handle—a bite-sized chunk of pop culture, in one person's life. But we're talking about all of Red China. We'll we'll take a stab at it. I have to say, I was a youngin when I first became aware of Red China, and it was through unusual circumstances because, in the early '70s, I was living in. Soviet Russia. I lived in Moscow in the American embassy. My dad was the air attache. And I have a distinct memory of some American propaganda in front of the American embassy that showed photographs of Nixon meeting Mao. Uh. So there was like lots of handshaking and glad handing and smiling. And of course, now I realize that it was all a big show off thing to the Russians to go, hey, look, Mao is uh, cozy-wozy <laughs> with America, and maybe you guys can be too. So that was my first impression. How about you? Did you have any awareness of Mao growing up I have or got China? a massive
1: gap in my knowledge, Katie, because China wasn't taught in British schools in a way which I now look back on and think it was quite weird, but maybe that information wasn't there. You know, you learned about Hitler and you learned about Stalin and you learned about the Second World War and the Cold War, but you, for some reason, ignored the most populous country in the world.
0: Yeah, uh, no, no real excuse for that other than uh, maybe just say it's it's out of our travel zone, uh, you know, kind of far away. Anyway, lucky for us and for all of you out there, we have an expert today to take us gently by the hand and lead us through. She is Professor Yangwen Zheng, and she is the professor of Chinese history at Manchester University and the author of several books. Hello, Yangwen. Hi. Hi. Hello. So you actually, I mean, of course, you're based here in Britain now, but how do you see your youth in China? How, did, how would you kind of sum up that time?
2: I would say revolutionary, idealistic, politics, lots of politics that today's kids don't comprehend. Um, I lived through the Cultural Revolution, leaving China in 1989. So um, I, I've, seen, I've seen a lot. I used to be envious of the Red Guards because I was a kid and I said, "Oh, how wonderful they can travel around the world, uh, you know China without paying a ticket and go everywhere. It's so much fun. I used to want to go and parade and waving the little flag. There was lots of violence as well. M- my generation saw a lot of violence. It's
1: such a vast topic, this one, isn't it, Katie? Mm. So sometimes Billy Joel gives us a nice little neat one, like we had Doris Day last time. We got Johnny Ray, the sort of doomy singer, next week. But red China, Yang Wen, it's, I mean, I'm not quite sure where we start and finish with this. Help us out.
2: I think when you say red China, actually the colour red is a happy colour. You know, people wear red when they get married. So in a way, Communist Party has hijacked this color, and made it a color of, of revolts and revolution. What really strikes me today is, is politics. Politics is everything. Everything was politicized. Your language, your clothing, your behavior, your body language, and everything. Very totalitarian. Everybody watching each other and can report each other, even children, like my my classmates would report that I have a new pencil box and it's bourgeoisie. Wow. Yeah, so it's 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 something incomprehensible today after I left China. So red is communist, I suppose, and it's authoritarian, it's control, it's politicizing everything.
0: So the birth of Communist China was 1949 and it was spearheaded by Mao. Can you fill us in on what was his special charisma? What was it about him that made him such a domineering leader
2: that compelled people to follow him? I mean, it's maybe it's not an exaggeration to compare him with Trump. Because um he had absolute control over the party and the army, because he redefined communism for China. So he was the ideologue that no one could replace. So he had absolute control. So he commanded respect within the party with the army. The other side of him is maybe a bit like Trump. He's very charismatic. He... He appeals to the peasant. You know, he goes on and smokes with them. He lights cigarette with them. Imagine, you know, the great leader goes to peasants. They're working in the fields. You go there and say, Hey, guys, come on. Let's take a break. And then he lights cigarette for them <laughs> and sits with them. So he's, he's, he knows how to mobilize and galvanize the ordinary people and. The things in them that they didn't even realize it was there. So in a way, it's a bit like Trump. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Is that is that a politically correct analog? I well, I would
0: say it actually does a disservice to Mao because Trump is uh, yes, not, of course, not as probably I'm guessing not as intellectual as as Mao was. I gather that that he was somebody who was actually had quite refined sensibilities in terms of being a poet, and uh, I don't know that Donald Trump has. <laughs> That great, great a command of language. but I'm interested in um also the time that he came to power because there must have been a reason why communism was attractive to the Chinese. So what was there there was a civil war going on, a lot of hardship. So what was it about communism itself that seemed like such a great lifestyle?
2: Yeah, and you know, I, the Communist Party came across as very democratic. And it looked like they were really working for the benefits of the people. So they did have appeal and they took land from the rich and gave it to the poor. So they were really doing what Democrats would do. But of course, after they got power, things changed. And and regarding that land reform movement at
0: the beginning, that was actually, I mean, it sounds good, but... Uh, scratch the surface. And it turns out it was a, a mass murder movement as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, the, the tenants were encouraged to literally kill off the landlords. How did that
2: operate? How did that go down? Yeah, I actually have a family story to, to tell. So if you look from the perspective of the peasants, oh, it is great. You know, we took the land and you know, you could go to their household to take their furniture to take their belongings, to take their gold, to take their... So you you can just take anything you want. You know, Cultural Revolution was a bit like that. So in 1949, 1950, the communist troops came to my province, Hunan, and my mother's family was a big landlord. But my mother's father was a professor. He was very left-wing. So the communist troops gathered the whole village and put my uncle on the platform, and ask the villagers to go and accuse him. So they all jumped under the stage and accused him, beat him up. They shot him live in front of the whole village. And my mother was 14 years old. My mother would never forget that. And my mother makes sure that I remember that. And my mothers could see him struggling because he was still alive. Amazing. And then the leader of the squad, Finished him off with two more shots. This brutality
0: is constantly, you know. The more you find out about China during this time, it's twinned with hypocrisy. Yeah, because uh, you have the the leaders coming in, as you say, ordering the people, the the citizens, to just willy nilly pick somebody out to be a victim. So it's almost like a like psychological warfare, as well as killing your own neighbor
2: killing your own friend, mm-hmm.
0: killing villagers.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit mad. And I just thought people were just venting their anger or injustice at an individual rather than at a system. You know, people wonder why this happened in the Cultural Revolution. That's exactly the precedent that it, it set. People were taking out their private grudges on your neighbors. And maybe you can say it's a settling of score. In the neighborhood. Yeah.
1: It's, it's staggering when you start looking at these things, Katie, isn't it? That you're absolutely right. The undercurrent to the whole story of post-war China is death. Whether it's famine because of the Great Leap Forward, whether it's executions, whether it's the cultural revolution. And it's, it's terrifying when you look at the numbers of people.
2: Yes.
1: This involves Yang Wen. Yeah,
2: millions of people. You know, for me as a historian, it's really sad that Chinese people have not reflected today, because if you don't reflect as a nation, it will happen again. What happened is after Mao, people went mad for money.
1: It's not dissimilar to the situation in um, Germany, is it? After the reunification of Germany, we'd have a, a similar situation. But does any of this happen, Yang Wen? without Mao. So when you look at the stories of other revolutions in other nations, there's usually one decisive figure who takes it in a certain direction. But had Mao died on the Long March, let's say Mao doesn't make it, does China still look the same in the 40s and the 50s?
2: Probably not. What makes Mao different? He is a peasant. He's never been comfortable with city people, bourgeois. If you had Premier Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping or Liu Shaoqi from the beginning, these are people from middle, upper middle class who went abroad to France, to the Soviet Union to study. They are bourgeoisie themselves, solid, you know, old aristocracy. If these people came to power, had Mao died, no, I think Chinese communism might be different might be different. Zhou so, Enlai no, is a defining example of that. He would have rallied everybody, bourgeois or foreigners. He would have made China more cosmopolitan, more onto the path of economic reform, rather than Mao's ideological, puritanic, bloody. Something is wrong with Mao. I don't know. We used to have a joke, kid, me and my brother, because every day we're supposed to identify class enemy. Wow. And it's like, what is class enemy? You know, kids, we don't know, so we laugh at each other. You're class enemy. You're a class enemy. <laughs> I mean, come on, 1970s, all the old people are dead. There is no class enemy. So, do you see what I mean? I think he's, he's just mad about politics, about, you know, somebody, everyone has to agree with him. No, something is funny about him. Even though, on a personal level, he's not that a bad person. He actually was not. How would you describe him
0: on a personal level?
2: Um, he was caring, down to earth. You know, he was wearing flat shoes all the time, handmade. He smoked cigarettes. Uh, he grew himself. He's a man of little demands, little decoration, he, little desire. He's a peasant. You know, he's just, his whole being is <laughs> communism. I don't know, how do you describe that? It's somebody who's like so much into something that his whole being becomes that. Yes,
0: yeah, so he subsumes himself to this cause. And uh, so after the land reform movement, he launches another disastrous initiative, which is the Great Leap Forward, the forced collectivization and industrialization of China. So
2: what was that involving? You know, the peasants were supposedly given land, right? Yeah. But this all was taken back. It's taken back by the government. Yeah, it's taken back by the government and say, look, you know, your land is too narrow, too long. It's not good for the contractors. So peasants were just cheated out or or forced out of this in a way. So collectivization in the communes, we used to eat in the factories, dining hall, neighborhood dining hall, there's not much to eat. Yeah, what is the, what's the food like? What are you eating? It's terrible. It's like, you know, hardly any meat. It's all veggie. It's badly cooked. You're not supposed to cook. So peasants don't cook, don't till their own field. There's nothing to, to look for in, in their life. Um, industrialization, for example, the, the, to produce iron and steel, you need fuel and there's no fuel. So peasants were sent to the countryside to cut down trees so just think how many millions of acres of of trees were, were cut. So that's the problem with Mao. He's just subsumed in his own revolutionary ideas, has no regard. He's so idealistic, has no regard for the ordinary people, you know, from 1949, just one political movement after another until he died.
0: It's all about slogans. It's all about end results uh, without any thought of how to get there. And of course, during this time, people are starving. Yeah
1: millions upon millions of people are starving
0: and they they unfortunately uh have to resort to cannibalism in some cases
2: yeah uh we historians are, are still debating the figures some say it's 40 million some say it's 20 million I, I probably think it's halfway you know maybe 30 million i asked my mom uh my mom said at the garbage dump it's a scene that i would i have seen in africa and India, some places, Southeast Asia, where you have kids salvaging the garbage to see if there's any food. And my mum remembers that and she tells me that. Cannibalism, she didn't say that. My parents lived in big cities, so you don't, you don't see the cannibalism. But it, I'm sure it happened.
1: The, the obvious question, Yangwen, with all this, is how does Mao get away with it? Exactly. Is Mao aware of what's going on?
2: He was aware. He was, but he thought it was, you know, necessary sacrifice for the ideal of communist utopia. He's always saying we're going to have a communist utopia. I used to ask, what is utopia? And I remember my mom said, um, so when you are hungry, you 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 don't you can go to any restaurant and you say I'm hungry, and then they will give you something to eat, and that's utopia. It was like, okay, that's great. That sounds great. And so.
0: Mao uh, was so focused on the end result. uh, And also he was big on image. So during this time where people were starving, reduced to eating tree bark and rats or whatever, he was making a show of exporting what little wheat China had to the rest of the world to kind of fake this look of, uh, oh, we have a super abundance, we can afford to to get rid of this. I mean, that's just beyond egregious.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. China could not um, feed itself. China still imports. You know, it's a large country. Its harvest could not feed its own people. And during the Cultural Revolution, a lot, tons of grains and everything was sent to to Africa, um, to Latin America, to Southeast Asia, to make political allies in order for China to enter the UN. Because to enter the UN, you need their vote, every African country. So for Mao, politics can come at the cost of ordinary people's lives. It does not matter to him.
1: Katie, I don't know about you, but I need a little breather. Shall we have some ads? This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley, this is the story of Prince.
2: It's a new podcast series
1: about how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after.
2: It's like nothing you've ever heard before.
1: That feeling.
2: That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar
0: on your podcast app
1: and subscribe now. <laughs>
0: I'm interested in getting into the cultural revolution now. This was in the in the mid sixties and that's the, the at the time that you were a child mm. in China and you would have been experiencing this. Um I gather that uh, there was a little bit of a slump in Mao's popularity and he thought, let's do another initiative. Mm. Let's let's uh, let's get it the word out that thing, things are moving and shaking. Uh, what was the big idea behind the cultural revolution?
2: Right. I think there are Two things, which I I think you've um, touched upon. One is the political. It's always politics. He was sidelined after 1962. Liu Shaqi became the chairman, and they did a good job. Liu and Zhou Enlai, the other leaders did a good job bringing the economy back from the disaster of the Great Leap Forward. Somehow it was sidelined, and then he wanted to come back. So that's one aspect. Is the political. Now the other aspect is more long term, more macro. You know, Mao is a modernizer. He wanted to just throw away thousands of years of Chinese culture. He just cannot understand why some of his colleagues, like probably John and Deng Xiaoping, you know, wanted a better life. The war is over, we have control of China. Why not build a better life? Why not enjoy life? And ordinary people too, well, you know, buy a car, a radio, or no car at that time, buy radio, buy a sewing machine, buy bicycles. You enjoy life. So Mao thinks that that's bourgeois, that's old. So Mao is a modernizer. So he wants a complete new culture where people would sacrifice themselves for the good of the nation. But that's not possible. <laughs> so yeah, so it's another political movement, just one after another, never ending.
1: So describe for us, Yang Wen, what it was like growing up in the Cultural Revolution. If you're in China, if you're in a province, if you're in a little town or a little village, because we're aware of, of the horrors, the macro horrors, the number of people who die, these awful stories, Katie, about children betraying parents, of, of wives and husbands betraying each other, of brothers and sisters. But in that country at that time what would it be like yang Wen?
2: you know as a child i if i have to summon it up it was a big political party you know every day there is excitement Somebody is beating the gown, you know walking on the street shouting with flags there's a party every day kids loved it i loved it no school (laughs) it's great
0: (laughs) and and there and there's no school because what the teacher got uh killed or stoned
2: to death by uh, the the Red Army kids? Because that's bourgeois, you know, that's bourgeoisie, that's capitalist rotor if you spend too much time studying. So what you have in the Cultural Revolution is actually civil war. So you have people accusing one group and one group, you know, accusing them back. So it's like one gang against another, and you have, what you have is chaos.
0: And it also seems like it's not even as organize a civil war, because in this case, it's brother against brother, student yep. against teacher, yep. um, d- completely nihilistic. I mean, talk about the worst excesses of social media and Twitter, uh, but th- this, in this case, resulting in death, because, of course, uh, you know, not only was it anti-intellectual, but it was just anti-community and society.
2: I remember uh, one morning we w- w- woke up and was about to go out, our front door uh, had a big poster. So that happens all the time. And then the accus- accusation was that uh, my mother was a bourgeoisie because her father was a landlord and um, my father's family was merchants and blah, blah, blah. And then we should confess our sins to the people, to the party, and to the neighborhood. And we had to go out of the you know window. And that was actually good. You know, People only put posters on your door
0: you were lucky,
2: right, that it was yes. only posters. Yeah, and then late, later on they would come to search your house for things and, and ransack your, your house. And the people who ransacked our house were neighborhood watch communities. You know, there was a Auntie Wan. Auntie we call her. She was the wife of the party secretary, and I think she loved the juries of my grandmother. It's the Red Guards who came. She, they went straight to uh, my grandmother's room, and they got her jewelry. Years later, years later, my cousin saw my grandmother's jewelry being worn by her, and we never asked for it to come to be handed back to us. So, what do you say? Is that revolution? It's not. She's using her position as the wife of the party secretary for the neighborhood to ransack the house of a rich family. So she could lay her hands on the jury.
1: It's almost unimaginable horrors here in this, Katie, aren't there? And there was one thing that stood out for me when I was doing a bit of reading on this, and that was the suicide. So we've heard about the famines and about the executions, but the number of people who just couldn't take any more.
2: Especially intellectuals. Uh, My uncle, my father's sister's husband, uh, hung himself um, because he was accused of corruption. I had a cousin who was sent to uh, Xinjiang, you know, Uyghur, northwest China. He he committed suicide because he's, he didn't see any hope of coming back to big city. He was very thin and uh, he never came back. You know, that, that Auntie Wan who runs out, she's still alive. And I went back with my cousin and I saw an old lady sitting in a wheelchair and I said, hang on. She looks very much like Auntie Wong. She had two sons. Both of them were murdered after the Cultural Revolution. Oh. So I think people took matters into their own hands.
0: Yeah, a little bit of karma
2: yeah. going on. So I almost wanted to go forward to her to say hi. <laughs> My cousin from Canada, she's in Toronto. <laughs> she grabbed me and said, what are you doing? Did Did your
0: cousin feel like you may have been putting... You yourself in danger by confronting her or was it just that she wanted to let the past lie in the past?
2: No, she said she deserves that. Okay. I wanted to be nice to her just to say hi, maybe offer a few words of kindness or whatever and asking her how are you, something like that. Well, that's very
0: big of you, young Wen. I would have wanted to know how she's enjoying the jewelry of your <laughs> grandmother.
2: She's still alive today. Yeah.
0: Incredible. So the thing that strikes me when I hear all these stories about the Cultural Revolution, which is just one of those crazy terms like that means the opposite of what it sounds like, because it, obviously it's anti-culture and you know, anti-intellect. It's such a government-owned goal against the brightest minds of the country, like all of those people who were terminated, starved to death, driven to death by suicide, those are the people that could truly have brought China forward into the best possible version of itself. Was there not an awareness at the time that this
2: was, you know, not the way to go? Yes, that's why you have thousands of people fleeing to Hong Kong, thousands. Uh, Even to Vietnam in 1968, there were tens of thousands of people uh left china for today you call kazakhstan yes people were aware yeah that you know the best and the brightest were were being killed was there
1: i'm just trying to figure out and maybe this is the wrong thing to do katie because there is no logic in in these situations i'm almost trying to figure out why mao has ended up the way he has how do you how do you go from being
0: what do you mean ended up the way he has like just to as being a,
1: a, just a pop culture caring, icon? Well, <laughs> just not caring about the death of 20, 30 million of his compatriots. So how do you get from being an idealistic young man who likes writing poetry to being a megalomaniac psychopath? I don't know, Yang Wen. Was there was there like a turning point in his life? Was there some atrocity that happened to him that that changed him forever?
2: I think one thing that can maybe explain when it comes to big characters is power. Power has a such strange grip on a human being, let alone a human being of that nature. No, I think power is something. Once power has permeated every fiber of your being, you're no longer a human being.
0: I mean, what you said is so acute and profound because really it doesn't just explain Mao. It also explains why family members would turn on each other during the Cultural Revolution or why, you know, teenagers would be denouncing their teachers or, you know, just in such a nihilistic way because it would be that sense of complete control and, and utter domination. So that must have been so seductive. To people, mm, maybe I'm still trying to figure out. So Mao is is fading out, and the Cultural Revolution, it seems, is winding down because he's
2: winding down. Is that was that the equation? I think so. If he wasn't, it would continue. I think the general population was fatigue, like COVID fatigue. People just fatigue. You know, revolution after revolution every day. You go into the office and self-criticize, what else do you have to criticize if you had already done that yesterday? So I think there's that fatigue of revolution as well on the popular level.
0: This is so fascinating. And also I didn't know, Yangwen, how much you lived through this. So it's just incredible to get your perspective. Um, Mao did so much damage throughout the whole course of his regime. Um, How does today's China address the aspects of
2: Mao? Like, how is he talked about in the culture? Actually, he's come back. He's made a comeback. Wow. You have taxi drivers, Mao's hanging uh, in the car. I think uh, Mao's still kind of regarded a great leader by many people. I mean, if you're a peasant, you know, you, you you got land and even though it was collectivized and then later on this reform, you were able to send your children to university, maybe they even get a scholarship to go to America. I mean, that's great. So, I, I would say he did change China, the revolution and modernization but the ways in which the mechanism and uh, the institutions is, is highly problematic um, and there's one thing that a lot of people like him about, he's not corrupt. He didn't like money. He didn't care about money. He didn't know how much he gets paid. It's just, today, it's all about corruption.
0: How does the country, I mean, not only how does the country recover from this, but how, how did you and your own family recover from the brutality that you personally experienced, that violence that your, your mother witnessed? Like, How do you factor that in and get past
2: that? Or do you? I don't think people have done that. People switched from revolution to making money uh, very quickly. And some people got rich very quickly. So I don't think the nation has so searched collectively. I don't think people have so searched individually. No, it hasn't. So maybe it will take another generation. The majority of Chinese people have not reconciled. I don't think my mother will never reconcile. So it's a problem.
1: Yang, when you've caught, you've brought something from your childhood to show us today.
2: Yeah. To indoctrinate kids about class struggle, um, the regime uh, printed millions of little palm-sized picture books. It tells you about class struggle uh, stories. So I've got two of them that I bought to show you.
0: And I can see on, on one of them, you have, it almost looks like a scene from a ballet. There's a
2: revolutionary a, ballet. Yeah, I liked it very much. You know, these things are expensive at that time. My dad always made sure I had every latest uh, you know, publication, and I, I always bring it to school to show how politically correct we are. Some of them were stolen by my classmates whose family didn't have money to buy them. And then I next day, I still had to self-criticize myself. It's crazy. So to justify this theft, basically, to say that it was good, that it was stolen. Right, because
0: it took you down a peg. You were showing off anyway. That was a bit bourgeois of you. So your family had the money. So it's just as well that somebody poorer than you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
2: Got that propaganda. Yeah, and my pencil box and my school bag, it just everything that I had, a lot of times were stolen. But it's fun. You know, when you look <laughs> back today, it's kind of fun. I, I met the guy who, took, who stole my pencil box on the street one day. Well, a- as adults. As adults, a few years ago. It's funny, He tried to break their eyes by saying... <laughs> do you want your pencil box back? That is so funny. <laughs> and I said, no, you can keep it. <laughs> oh, the the old
0: cultural revolution stories. And, and you know what interests me about the fact that there's um, a revolutionary uh, ballet scene on the front of that book is that there's nothing more bourgeois than... A uh, French ballet. There's a you can see the ballerina there on her point sho- shoes. So she's wearing point shoes, but she's wearing you know beautiful silk, and then then the men with her are also, also like you know satin lounge wear, peasant wear. <laughs> but um, but you know the form itself, it's from 17th century France, and it it couldn't have been more elite. Yeah. And, and using uh,
2: bourgeoisie uh, genre to tell communist proletarian revolution. What irony. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so
1: Thanks, yang much. Thanks, That's been absolutely fascinating.
2: Thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: so, Tom, Billy threw Red China into the mix, kind of a, a cheat in a way because he's, you know, anything can happen. And we focused in on Mao and yang Wen really uh, clued us in on the grimness of his reign and his regime. Uh, do you think... Billy was, uh, this was kind of an easy call for him to put Red China in the mix. What do you think?
1: It's such a massive topic, Katie, isn't it? That had Billy been a different sort of musician, he could have built a concept album around Red China, not just throwing away a little line in the first line of his song. Yeah. But I found, like, we have different guests on this show, don't we? Because you and I have got a little bit of knowledge between us. We need people to fill the gaps. And what I found amazing about Yang Wen, I thought Yang Wen was just going to tell us what happened. This is what historians think. I didn't expect that first-hand account. And when she started talking about the horrors and the madness and the black humour of what it was like in that time, did you find yourself thinking, how would I have coped?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I found myself thinking that, and I found myself answering that question by, I don't think I would have. I probably would have been one of those people amscring for Hong Kong, you know, trying to to get the hell out of Dodge. Or, plan B, uh, palmed myself off as a revolutionary ballerina (laughs) and... uh, You know, because I am a a show poodle from way back and I I, I do like to to trip the light fantastic. So maybe that would have been a way to uh, keep my head down till the purge was over. But what an incredible privilege to hear Yang Wen's story as well.
1: Yeah. And I think the image of her pencil box will stay with me for a long time, even as realistically, Katie, I think you and me would have been screwed we we write we broadcast which we are right at the top of the list when i mean we're
0: totally bourgeois
1: when was the last time that you tended to a crop
0: i killed a cactus <laughs> recently in my little home so yeah i think uh, i would have been earmarked as bourgeois and i think you're a little bit too well groomed and too well spoken so you would have been for the chop tom i'm afraid
1: no chance at all no And, you know, at the start of this pod, Katie, we always say that this is not just a history pod. It sort of explains the way the world is today. Yeah. And everything that Yang Wen told us there. So China is now probably the dominant. Well, it is the dominant economy in the world. Yeah. And it is the dominant power. And it is part of all our lives, even thousands of miles away. I'm sitting here with an iPad. You've got an Apple Mac. Both of those are made in China. Yeah. You've got the first generation of iPhone, (laughs) which is quite cool, but also like my iPhone. It's come from China.
0: Yeah, it comes from China. And, you know, there's some suspicion that there's forced labor involved in making these products that we apparently can't live without. And that's a big problem in China where, you know, there's a lot of uh, mystery and uh, sinisterness about where this labor is coming from. Do
1: you think we understand China any more than we did back then?
0: My sense of it, uh, after hearing what Yang Wen had to say, is that red China and the way it, it lurched from grim social program to yet another ghastly uh, annihilation and you know mass starvation built as a social program, it almost is a, a little blueprint for the worst things that humans do to each other. Because you start off on a project thinking, you know, what if we all just pitch in together? This will be a great thing. And of course, that was the idea behind communism. Let's all pitch in together. And um, but. You know what? There's always a big dog at the top who is a little bit too big for his britches and quite enjoys that taste of power and runs away with it. And before you know it, we're eating our brothers and sisters. (laughs) You know, before you know it, there's cannibalism. And uh, I think it's really a cautionary tale for the Lord of the Flies tendency that's built into humankind.
1: And who would have thought that it would be Billy Joel? Who took you to that sentence?
0: I'm pretty angry at him about that.
1: (laughs) So he's given us so far Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China. Next week on We Didn't Start the Fire, Katie, Johnny Ray. Johnny Ray. Doomy, gloomy 1950s singer. The reason why Elvis happens, maybe the reason why the Beatles happened, definitely the reason why Morrissey happens.
0: Oh, I'm now really mad at Johnny Ray.
1: Network, A place where you belong.
3: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.